that God is about doing something amazing, and we get to have the privilege of being part of it. Uh, but we aren't the ones that are making it happen. God is the God of history, and He's the God of the future, and is by His Spirit. Now, have you ever wondered, uh, is God really at work, though? I mean, that's the verse we said, it's by His Spirit. And then you look at the way that the world is, and maybe your life, and you've been walking with God. Have you ever wondered, is God really at work in this? Is He really doing something here? We're out doing work for Him, but is, what is He doing? Or ever wondered, is Jesus really coming back? I mean, it's been two millennia. Right? We're waiting for the Messiah. We're waiting, waiting, waiting. Is He really coming back? Or ever wondered, how does my life or my ministry really fit into God's big plans? I mean, is my little life, my little speck on this timeline of, of time, does it really make a difference? How do I fit in with what God is doing? And this book, Zechariah answers these questions for us. I think questions that all believers ask throughout time. Now, the book begins with this. In November of the second year of King Darius' reign, the Lord gave this message to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berkiah, the, the grandson of Iddo, I think. Iddo. Uh, now, that might sound like you say that the second year of King Darius' reign. You may say, hey, I've heard that before. Yes, last week. Uh, last week from Haggai, I remember that he had several prophecies. In fact, the second prophecy, it says on October 17th of the second year of King Darius' reign, the Lord sent a message to me. Uh, that God was speaking at the, through Zechariah at the same time he's speaking to Haggai. So all of the background information that we did for last week's message count for this week's message. So I'm not going to go into it too deep this week. But we have this, the prophet Zechariah. Now, we know about Zechariah, uh, great prophet. We know that he was probably a little younger than Haggai. We know that uh, he had some priestly lineage, uh, worked in, in the line of there. We know that he was murdered uh, by uh, his people between the altar and, uh, and, uh, the, uh, and the temple courts, the area there. Uh, and Jesus even talks about that. Uh, so that uh, was kind of a rough end to his career. Uh, but uh, he was bold, and he prophesied for many years. The first, uh, the dates of these, the first prophecy, the first eight chapters, uh, come at 520, the same time that uh, we see the prophet Haggai um, prophesying. In fact, he begins his ministry, his, his prophetic ministry, uh, basically a month after uh, Haggai's second prophecy. And then Haggai has his final prophecy, and then Zechariah picks up and continues the prophecy until the, the finishing of the temple. And then we have the second portion of it. And that's around 500 B.C. It wasn't dated, uh, but some of the things that are talked about in there let us know that that prophecy was written, or that second section was written about uh, 500, which would have been about 15 years after the temple was completed. And so God speaks again. The historical background of that, Haggai was actually prophesying. The temple work began September 21st, uh, 520. So the temple was underway. Uh, and so big things. And the people were growing in their faith. They were actually getting engaged. It was a time of renewal for people. They were building the temple of God faithfully. And yet it was also a time of great hardship. And we discover that when we read the history books uh, of the, the scriptures. And we find out that there were a lot of people from around the na area of Jerusalem that were giving them a very hard time. Uh, and it was a time of, of, of just difficulty. For them, And so the people were asking questions like they were looking at the temple they were building and they were saying this isn't as good as the temple that the original one. Why even bother? And they were looking at all the troubles that they were having from all the nations coming in and hindering their work to building a temple. And they were asking themselves, where's God? 
if God really wants us to build this temple, why does he make it any easier than this? Right? And they were having problems getting supplies. And they were saying, you know, if God really is going to owns everything, why isn't he providing more from this? And they were asking the questions, what does it matter? And that's this work that we're doing. We're doing a lot of extra work. We're building a temple which takes a lot of effort and takes a lot of their finances and time and, and energies and skills. And they're wondering, does it matter? And God sends them this prophet and he answers the questions for him. Now, the outline of the, of the book is this. God doesn't just answer them directly like Haggai, which basically says, build the temple. God is with you, build a temple. Instead, he gives them the big picture. He shows them where they fit in and what God is up to. And he begins with the first eight chapters as they're building the temple, saying God's big picture for the God's nation, Israel. What is God doing through Israel? So they could see why it mattered that they're rebuilding the temple and coming back together. The second portion, though, after the temple is done, 15 years later, and the temple's already there, and, and the worship's there, and the people then are getting comfortable with the way things are, God gives them a bigger picture. And he shows them how God is, is the big picture for God's kingdom, which was much bigger than just the, the temple and much bigger than just Israel. And it shows them God's plan throughout all of time, all the way through to the coming of the Messiah and the second coming. Amazing stuff. And the purpose of the book directly is to encourage the, the temple completion. The first portion of it, that's why it was written. So the people will be motivated so they will continue the work that God had for them to do. But on a bigger picture, it's to enlighten and to repair God's people for his plans. He want, God is showing us what he is up to so that we can be part of what he's doing, but also prepare us for what he's doing so we will recognize his work when we see it. And the last thing that there is to predict the person and the ministry of the Messiah. Because the Messiah who is coming uh, is a central figure in this book and uh, was not necessarily exactly what the people thought he might be. And so God was preparing us for who the Messiah was going to be so we would recognize him when he came and we'd be ready for his work uh, when he came. So that's why it's the theme of this is to get the big picture. That's the theme of, of the book. And it's a big book. So let's get into it. The big picture for God's nation. Uh, it begins like this. It says, I, the Lord, was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, say to the people, this is what the Lords of Heaven's army says, return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Now, of course, that's also quoted in the New Testament again. And it talks about God's heart. The people of God were underway building the temple of God. And God reminds them what happened. The reason they're rebuilding the temple is because they sinned. They walked away from God and he had to discipline them. And now they were coming back and God gives us amazing promise. He says, you return to me, I'm going to return to you. And I'm going to do amazing things through you. And so he begins with that first section saying, don't wander again. Right. Learn the lesson from the past. And he talks about how his the ancestors, those that came before them, didn't learn the lessons from God. They didn't listen to the prophets and they missed the mark. And he's warning us, don't don't make the same mistakes as your ancestors. Learn from them so you can be part of his great plan. And then he gets into a series of eight visions. These are an apocalyptic kind of style. It sounds a lot like Revelation, and it should, because a lot of these you will also find in the book of Revelation. God shows us in the New Testament what he's up to. And there's eight of them. And so we'll just go through them very quickly. The first one is a man on a red horse. And it says, the night, uh, um, in a vision during the night, I saw a man sitting on a red horse uh, that was standing among some myrtle trees in a small valley. And behind him were riders on red, brown, and white horses. And then he goes on and he talks about these, those riders are actually, it's a recon 
those riders are coming back and they're telling the, the rider that's on the red horse, who is the leader of that, who we find out later is God himself, is the angel of God. And they say, basically, the world is at peace and it makes, the, makes God upset. And uh, so you have this recon. Let me show you some things um, in when you're studying prophecy like this. It's important things to, in order for us to do some tools. The first one is understand this. It's uh, God is using images to illustrate realities. That's an important thing. So when you read prophecies like this, you're not thinking that Jesus was actually sitting on a red horse in the middle of a, of a village. He, it says he got a vision of that. So God is telling us something powerful. And so there's a lot of symbolism that we need to listen to. But we need to look for the main point. We get in trouble when we read prophecy like this and we look for all kinds of little details and we find the scripture saying things that it never says. The, God is painting a picture for us to teach us something very powerful. So look for the main things um, So we want to do. So some main things that we find out here is that there is a rider. It's the angel of God. God is present and he's in charge. There's, there's a group of folks that are coming back and reporting to him. God understands what's happening in the world. Uh, he's sitting amongst the myrtle trees. When details like that are in there, why myrtle trees? Well, they represented Israel because uh, they grew up all around Jerusalem. And so it was uh, the people of God. God is amongst his people and they're in a deep valley, which means that they're in a time of lowliness, a time of, of despair. God is with his people in a time of despair and he knows what's happening in the world and God recognizes that the enemies of God are at peace and he's not happy with that and he's going to do something about it. So the meaning of that prophecy is this, that God is displeased that the Gentiles who are at rest while his his people are suffering. And so he's going to punish and restore his people. He's going to punish the Gentile world, he's going to restore his people. And then he gives us a bigger picture as to what that's going to look like. And he gives us another vision of four horns and four workers. And so this one sounds funny because there's four horns that, that show up and they represent and they tell you in Scripture. So sometimes when the Scripture tells you what it means, then you know that's what it means. It represents the four nations that scattered Judah and Jerusalem. And then after that come four workers. Some of them say they're craftsmen. Some say that they're blacksmiths. Um, so you have this crazy vision of four horns and four workers and you say what on earth in scripture when you hear numbers numbers mean something four is a number of completion uh, like the four uh, corners on a compass right north side is a number of completion Um, but in this instance it doesn't mean that because it says it stands for the four nations that uh, that Uh, cast Israel uh, aside. So those four horns then represent powers. So when you read horns in scripture and prophecy, it means that these are powers or nations or uh, things like that. And so the four horns are talking about are Babylon, uh, which was around the 7th century. Uh, You have Persia in the 5th century, Greek in the 3rd century, and Rome in the 1st century. So you have your first predictive prophecy, but there was four nations. So the people that originally heard this, it said four people that scattered us. Who is that? Well, now we have history and we know. Uh, it's the same four that you find in the statue in Daniel 7, which is interesting. And then you get down to where Jesus comes back and, uh, and we find that Jesus overcomes them. Now you have the four craftsmen. The four craftsmen's job is to undo the work of the four horns. Right? So these craftsmen are those that are commissioned by God. And they skillfully dismantle the work of the horns. And so it turns out that these four craftsmen also happen to be the, the basically the kings of the seceding empire. So you have uh, Persia's there, and who ends up taking Persia? Well, it's the Greeks, Alexander the Great, 
right? And so then who takes the Greeks? Well, any of the Romans, right? So you, you go through and we have the, the four horns are destroyed by four agents of God who skillfully dismantled them. The last craftsman turns out to be the Messiah, by the way, which is pretty cool. I think it's interesting also that he uses craftsmen and not warriors. And you say, why is that? We're not sure. Um, a lot of commentators and, and uh, scholars believe it has to do with the fact that God is able to bring his kingdom in without violence. He uses skill. And so a lot of these craftsmen use violence, but God is able to bring about his kingdom and, and through skill, which is a cool thing. So the meaning of this one is this. There's the destruction of the Gentile world empires. God is teaching them, listen, there's going to be empires that are going to come here. They're going to scatter you. Don't freak out. They're part of the plan, and I'm going to destroy them skillfully. The next thing he talks about is this is a measuring line. And it's not just a measuring line, it's a guy that's the measuring line. So a guy runs out, and he's got a measuring line in his hand. He says, where are you going? He says, I want to measure Jerusalem to see how wide and long it is. Why? Well, it's a guy that's building the city. And these people were in the midst of building, and the city itself was destroyed. They were building the temple, and the city was in ruins. And this guy was building the city of Jerusalem. And so God's saying, I'm going to restore Jerusalem. We're going to build it. But it gets even bigger. Because not only is he, he's, he's got this tape measure and he's going, it right after that, the guy heads out to go measure the walls of the city so he can build them. The angel, another angel, shows up and says, go after that guy and stop him because the walls of the city are going to be too big. In fact, there's, there won't even be enough walls to contain the city of Jerusalem. In fact, God himself will be its own guard. He will protect it. And so... What he's doing is he's prophesying a pretty great thing about the Jerusalem that God is about to build. The future prosperity, populace, and security of Jerusalem is going to be too big to contain, and there's going to be room enough for all, and God himself will be his protection as you read it, which is a pretty great prophecy. And then he moves from there, and he talks about the high priest, one of the most beautiful pictures I think you see. You have this this picture of Joshua, which uh, is... uh, in the old Hebrew way of, of pronouncing Jesus, by the way, which is interesting, and that plays in a little bit later. The high priest, he's standing before the angel of God, and it seems like he's, he's standing before him there, and the accuser, Satan, is there, and the angel's at his right hand. He's making accusations against Joshua, and Joshua's standing there, and, and J- devil has point. Joshua's there, and he's in dirty clothes. In fact, uh, it, says, it says in there it's a excrement-stained clothes, so he didn't just look bad. He smelled bad. He was very dirty, and basically the devil's saying, why is he here standing before you? He doesn't have the right to go here, and God rebukes the enemy and says, I have chosen him and then clothes him in a new garment, takes off the old stinky clothes, puts on a new garment of pure white. And then Zachariah is there and says, give him a new hat too. And so he gets a new hat and he's standing there and which is a great thing. Now, some things that we recognize in here is that the priest represents the nation of Israel. He, he stands before God and he represents the people. That's what the high priest's job is. And Joshua had filthy robes, and that recognizes unrighteousness, which means he was unqualified to serve, and because he was a sinner. And he represented sinners uh, before God. And God rebukes Satan. And the rebuke that we read in there, um, through its language, we find that it is thorough. God rebukes him completely. There is no opening anymore for Satan to rebuke Joshua. It is uh, final. God says it's done. You will have another appeal. And it's also authoritative. God says that I have the ability, the right to, to redeem this guy. And he does. And then we have, uh, we have the clean garments 
righteousness given by grace. Joshua didn't earn them. He did nothing. They're actually put on him. He doesn't even go and put them on himself. He is redeemed by this grace. And then we say, what about the turban? What's the big deal with that? Well, the priest, when he wore the, the headgear, and we find in the Old Testament talks about his, his clothes, that represented his ability to intercede on behalf of his people before God. And so he not only was received uh, clean garments, so he has the right to be in God's presence in the service, but now he also has the right to talk to God on behalf of others and to intercede uh, for those. And so uh, the cleansing of the Old Testament priest here is, uh, is a type of preview of a wonderful cleansing and an ordination service for the priesthood of all uh, priests of God. And we find in the New Testament that we also are now a nation of priests. How amazing is that? And so we look at this and we recognize the meaning of this is the priesthood, uh, the representative of the nation is cleansed and restored by God's grace, which is unique, uh, how God is going to be working. So he gives them that. So now they recognize you're building the temple and your priest has the right to serve in it. And then um, he goes to a, a, a short thing where he talks about some messianic prophecies. And these are uh, because he's so excited because the Messiah is going to be a type of the high priest. And he says, listen to me, O Jeshua, the high priest and all other priests. You are symbols of things to come. Soon I'm going to bring to you my servant, the branch. Now we'll find that the branch represents the Messiah. There's also another scripture called the shoot, um, how it's, but the branch. So when Zechariah, when you read the branch, bing, Messiah. And it means that he's going to come up and he's gentle and he's going to be doing God's work, but the Messiah is going to come. And what we see here is that the branch, the, the high priest, is a representative or is a foreshadow of the work of the Messiah. And he's going to come and he's going to represent, uh, he's going to stand before God on the behalf of his people. That's one of the things that the Messiah is going to do. And he's going to be completely pure, which is a great thing. But not only was there a branch, there's something else in there, which is kind of interesting. It says, now look at the jewel I have set before Jeshua. The single stone with seven facets, which actually is better translated eyes. It says, and I will engrave an inscription on it. Uh, it says, the Lord of heaven's armies, and I will remove the sins of the land in a single day. And he's talking about the Messiah. And we look at this facet and we say, okay, what does this mean? A jewel with seven eyes. What's well, an etched jewel is the Messiah, clearly. There's the branch. And so we have the, the Messiah is the jewel. And it has seven eyes or seven facets. And it means that God, the Messiah, is going to be all-knowing. He sees all things. Seven in Scripture is a number of completion, number of perfection, actually. And so this Messiah will know all things perfectly. Who knows all things perfectly? God. This is one of the first times in the book we recognize that the Messiah is not just a high priest, but is also God himself. He will see all things perfectly. And so he has perfect wisdom. Now, the engraving is interesting because it doesn't talk about what he engraves. Engravings are deep cuttings. And because of these deep cuttings on this rock, this is so cool, that salvation is provided for all in a single day. That the Messiah, this all-knowing, perfect God, knows all things, is going to be engraved, cut. And because of those wounds, there will be salvation will be provided for all in a single day. That's the prophecy for the Messiah. That's what he's going to do. So it means that the, the Messiah is Savior. So he's a priest and he's a Savior. 
and he's going to be coming. Oh, I guess he cheese goosebumps, doesn't it? So then we go to the golden lampstand. This is one of the, uh, there's a couple of freaky ones, and this is one of them. So what do you see now? It says, I answered, I saw a golden lampstand. It has a bowl on top of it, and around the bowl are seven lamps. And each lamp has seven spouts with wicks. So picture that in your mind. You don't have to. I found a really lousy picture of it. It doesn't look like that, actually. Uh, the ones I found, the archaeology, they found that they had the, the bowl in the middle, and it doesn't look like the menorah style like this. Um, they dug them up. That's like a bowl in the middle you'd pour oil into, and then down the middle there'd be kind of like a, like a hole, and it would go to like these little cups, and each cup had like these little divots in where you'd put a wick in. And so there's ones like seven of those and seven wicks, and then so then all of them would show light. And that's probably what he saw, but I couldn't find a good picture of one, so you get this. Um, but really it doesn't matter, the lamp, the, what it looks like. Here are the things, a lot of symbolism in there. In that lampstand, we find that there's also two branches that come off from the side. And from those branches are these golden tubes. And out of the golden tubes comes olive oil, which feeds into the major bowl, and that's what provides the, the uh, fuel to make the lights. So let's take this apart. Gold represents preciousness. Okay, And uh, pure gold is, is uh, make sure that it's pure. That there's these these lamps are pure and they're precious. Seven means that it's it's perfection. These lamps are perfect for the task. They're going to do everything perfectly. There's seven of them to provide perfect light in all directions. And the purpose of these lamps are to radiate the light into the dark area. Now, even uh, in the Older Testament, everybody has recognized that these lamps represent the people of God. That God is going to have his people are going to be the bearers of light in this world. Perfect to do the work that they are called to do. Pure and precious. The seven lamps later on, we find that those seven tongues on each of the lamps on there, it says that those are the watchful eye of God. And the eyes of God. So this is omniscience. So God is going to be over and seeing and overseeing the work of the lamps and the light that they produce. You have two trees then that produce, that have the branches that come down. And the prophet says, well, what are those? And nobody answers. And he says, what are the branches? Not the trees. What are the branches? And, and the angel tells him that they're the anointed ones, the two anointed ones through whom God is going to do the work. And so that would be Zerubbabel, the king right? Because they're building the temple. And that would also be Jeshua, the high priest. So the king and the high priest are going to be feeding the, the lamps. And what are the, And where is this oil coming from? It's coming out of those branches. But what is the oil itself? The Holy Spirit. That God's Holy Spirit is empowering the work, which is so cool, of the lamps. That God is going to enable, he, he made the, the lamps precious and perfect, but it's not by human effort. In fact, God has a message for the king in the midst of this. And he says, he says, this is what you say to Zuberbel. He said, it is not by force nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. He gives him this incredible picture and he says, listen, you get to shine. You're going to build this temple. You're going to shine and radiate the truth of God to all the nation. But don't forget who's feeding, who's feeding the lamps. This is Holy Spirit. That God is the one who feeds us. It's by his power that the world is filled with the light of his gospel. What an amazing thing. So we look at that really awesome thing and we see this. That Israel, God's light bearer, will rebuild the temple by the spirit of God through the ministry of the king and the priest. 
That's what he's telling him. Amazing thing. Then we get the really cool flying scroll. He looked up again and he saw a flying scroll through the air. And it's a massive scroll. It's 30 feet by 15 feet. It's as big as the portico and temple. It's massive. And on one side of it, it says that, that all liars will be kicked out of heaven, right? Or, or the God's kingdom. And on the other side, it says all blasphemers will be kicked out of, of God's kingdom. And that scroll flies into every house and finds every sinner and makes sure that they're kicked out. So, what does this mean, this flying scroll? Well, the scroll is God's law. It's His righteousness, it's His way. It's, it's His revealed word to us. Now, on one side of the scroll, it talks about sins against humanity. A representative of that is lying. When we lie to one another, we're, we're, we are uh, sinning against each other. And so, sins against humanity as we break God's laws and we hurt other people. All people who do that, not in the kingdom of God. On the other side, it says all crimes against God, using his name in vain as being a, an example of that. All of those, not going to be in his kingdom. And so, uh, we see that uh, in this, that God will remove the unrepentant from amongst his people. And they're not going to have a place in his kingdom. So, that's kind of a scary one, but... We recognize it wouldn't really be a great kingdom of God if, can you imagine you get to heaven and the people just live like they do today? God is going to remove the unrepentant. Only repentant have a place in his kingdom. That the sanctions, the penalties, the curses of God are not idle threats or antiquated verbiage. God cares about righteousness and his kingdom will be one of righteousness. And then we have a really cool one. It's a woman in a basket with a heavy lid. And so that what happens, I'll just describe this to you. There's this basket. It's a, it's a, Epaph, it's, a, it's the biggest unit of measure to measure grain and stuff in the market area. And so it's about the size of a bushel. And on the top of it is this lid of lead that's a talent. And a talent was the heaviest unit of measure to weigh out things in the market square. So like gold and silver and things like this. And it was made of lead, which means it was obviously heavy. And it was covering the lid of the basket. And, and so the basket comes in and then they open at the top and there's this gal lounging inside. She's perfectly comfortable. And... Uh, and who is the gal? It's wickedness. It's in there. And as they open the lid, wickedness, this, this lady who's very comfortable in this basket, tries to climb out. And then the angel stuffs her back in, throws a lid on it. And then these two women who, that have stork's wings come in, fly, pick up the basket, take it to Babylon, where they say that they're going to build a shrine and a temple to it. And you think, what on earth? Are you talking about? So there's a picture of it. Yeah, Cruella de Vil. I loved that. So here's the thing. The basket and the lid represent godless commercialism. While the people were gone in Babylon and things like this, they learned how to do business and things like this. But the, both of those represent trade and commercialism. And inside of godless commercialism, what dwells? Wickedness. It's filled with the sins of all kinds of people, right? That's what he says. And we think that uh, in there, Jesus had those amazing words. He said that the love of money was the root of all kinds of evil. And we think that's true. So it was in the midst of this godless commercialism that these two, that, that, that wickedness dwells. And it was in the land. It was going to be carried away. And who's it carried away by? Well, these two women with stork's wings. Interestingly enough, the word for stork in the Hebrew is the same as for faithfulness. And so God's people are... They will remove wickedness and godless commercialism from their land. And they're going to kick it out. Now, where do they kick it to? 
Babylon, which represents all the godless nations. And what do the godless nations do with all of their godless commercialism and the wickedness that dwells within? They build a shrine to it. Isn't that the way that it works? That in God's kingdom, righteousness is going to rule and wickedness will be kicked out. But in the godless nations, they'll, they worship it. They worship their own wickedness. So it meaning the wickedness will be removed from God's people by faithfulness. But it'll be worshipped by the godless. And so we shouldn't be surprised that in this world, the things that we prize and value are going to be completely opposite of what those who don't have the same hope are part of this kingdom that we have. A great thing. And at the end of this, there's a vision that kind of sums up all of them. He, gets to, he says, I looked up again and I saw four chariots coming between the two bronze mountains. And so we have the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The same colors, things like this, four chariots. They're going to go out into the world and they're going to bring destruction both north and south, which means that they're, if you look at Israel on a map, if you're going to attack somebody, you have to go north or south because there's a desert on one side, there's an ocean on the other. So if you're going to attack, you're going to go north and south, and that's how you're going to attack the whole world. And those horses go and they attack the world. Now, uh, four chariots, what does four mean? Completion. God's going to bring his complete judgment. Two mountains, uh, representing obviously the mountains of, in Jerusalem, uh, which would be Mount Zion and Mount Olives, which oftentimes like we hear this, the, the city of seven mountains is Rome. We have the city of two mountains, oftentimes in scripture is Jerusalem but these mountains aren't just regular mountains they are bronze which means that it's not he's not talking about physical or or terrestrial Jerusalem he's talking about celestial Jerusalem God is going to bring about his judgment from his kingdom and that's where it's going to come from and then we have the chariots it's God's judgment when you see the war horses the chariots God's judgment will be swift and he's going to go north and south he's going to cover the whole world and so uh, there's going to be um, there's going to be no mediation of the judgment through human agency. That's not going to be needed. You're not going to be people to go and to fight and to bring God's judgment to this world. He's going to take care of that, and He will bring it swiftly and completely. And uh, so we look at this final thing. We say it kind of sums up all of these. Israel's enemies, the ones that were at peace at the beginning of these eight, God is bringing judgment against them, and they're ultimately going to be put down by God's armies. At the same time, God is going to be restoring His people. So there's the eight visions. We get to the end of the eight visions and we have uh, a symbolic coronation, which again is just so amazing. And so what happens was the people in Babylon and they were still faithful, but they didn't want to go and build the temple, right? But they want to finance it. So they would take up gifts and offerings and things like this. And, uh, and well, they're up in, in this, uh, Persia and they would send down these gifts and normally that they would be used and, and for building the temple. But this time the God says to the prophet, take these gifts and make a crown, two crowns, one of pure gold, one of pure silver, and, and intertwine them together, and then crown the high priest, not the king. Not Zerubbabel, the, 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 the leader. He says, crown the, um, the high priest. And so we look at that, we say, what on earth? Why would he be doing that? And uh, we look, recognize a couple of things are there, that gold represents royalty. And so, like, the king would wear a crown of gold. Silver represents holiness, pure silver. And so that represents the priesthood. And so Joshua is the high priest. He's going to be crowned by this. And uh, this is what it says uh, on verse 12. It says, tell him, this is what the Lord of Heaven's army says, here is the man called the branch, and he will branch out from where he is and build the temple of the Lord. So after, after the high priest has given this crown, this dual crown, which is put together, the prophet says this high priest represents the branch. And who is the branch? The Messiah. 
So he's telling us something amazing about the Messiah's ministry. This Messiah, this branch, is going to be the high priest. Okay? He's going to be the high priest of, of the land, but he's also going to be king. And it says that there's something pretty amazing. It says that he's going to do both jobs and there's not going to be any trouble between his two roles. That he, he'll be able to do both perfectly. And so uh, he tells us a couple things about this. He will build the temple of the Lord. So that's the thing the Messiah is going to do. He's going to build the temple of God. Just like the high priest here is building a physical temple, the Messiah was also going to build a temple of God. But he wouldn't have to build a physical temple because that one is clearly done by Joshua the high priest. But this new high priest, his job is to build the temple of God. The second thing is he's going to be a high priest. He's going to represent his people before God. The third thing is he's going to be the king of Israel. Which is interesting because according to the Old Covenant, you couldn't have the priest be the king. Why? Well, the priest was from a different tribe. And so the priest had to go from the lineage of Aaron. And the king had to come from the lineage of King David. And so how would you have a king and a priest? There has to be a new covenant. In fact, it's the same covenant that King David was looking forward to when he wrote in the 110th song. He says there's going to be a new priest in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. And we find the fulfillment of that in Christ. And Hebrews 7 has this great discussion about how Jesus fulfills both of these. But I love this thing that the crown is both king and priest. Both both roles he fulfills perfectly. And it says that there will be perfect harmony between his two roles. So when the Messiah came, we should look for that. And we find that in Jesus. Now, after this discussion and this, this coronation, the people have a question then. Because they're building the temple and it was those in the region around it. And for 70 years, they had been holding this fast. They had, they had four fasts, actually, that they would hold every year about uh, because the, when the Israelites were taken away and when they lost the king and when Jerusalem was destroyed, and when the temple was destroyed, they all had these fast days for that. And then they saw the temple being rebuilt and they said, do we really have to keep doing these? And so they asked them, should we continue to mourn and fast each summer for the anniversary of the temple's destruction that we have done for so many years? Why would we do that if the temple is, is being raised? And so then the prophet in the next two chapters gives them four sermons, which we'll just go over very quickly. But here's what he says about these in these four sermons to answer their question. The first one is that God never ordained the fasts. So these were never my idea. They were your idea. I never asked for them. And so you're really just doing them for yourselves. And, and so he's telling us the first thing is that God really wants, uh, he wants reality, not just ritual. The second thing is that judgment was from God. He says, he reminds them that, that your ancestors, the reason that you're rebuilding a temple is because I had it destroyed. And the reason I had it destroyed is because your ancestors didn't practice justice, righteousness, or mercy. They didn't worship me. And so why are you fasting over, why are you moaning and and and, and treating my judgment like it was a bad thing. It was a good thing that I judged you guys because you deserved it. The third thing that he says this is that the Lord will restore his people. And so when I disciplined you, you forgot the fact that I'm disciplining, not punishing. And I promise that I will rebuild you again. And he talks about that. Why are you fasting over your discipline? You should be looking forward to the redemption. And the third or the fourth thing that he goes there um, with is he says that Israel's fasts. He says all these things. Everybody in the world looks at you and, and they and they say, wow, you, you guys are I would hate to be an Israelite. He says, you know what? Blessing is coming through you. It's going to bless the whole world. And there's a day coming that all of your fasts will turn to feasts. And so he answers their question 
no, you shouldn't keep fasting. <laughs> that we're looking forward to the coming of Jesus. And you know what is interesting? When Jesus came, he was asked the same question, right? The, uh, John the Baptist's disciples came to him and said, why aren't your disciples fasting? And Jesus said, well, the bridegroom's here with them. This is a time to feast. And so amazing things. So here we go. We, um, he tells them then at the very end of that, he said amongst the other nations, Judah and Israel uh, became symbols of cursed nation. And they had for 70 years. People said, I'd hate to be them. But he said, but no longer. I'm going to rescue you and to make you a symbol and a source of blessing. And why does he tell them this? He says, because don't be afraid. Be strong and get on with rebuilding the temple. Right? So knowing God's picture for the nation, and, and God sums up, that's the end of that, that portion of the passage, that God is telling his people, I'm rebuilding you as a nation. The Messiah is coming through you. You're going to shine like lights throughout the world. You're going to remove wickedness from your land by faithfulness. Uh, I'm, going to be, I'm, I'm going to be changing everything from the curses to blessings through you. Great things are happening. So keep on with the work. Keep on with the work. God's doing great things. And you know what happened? The people did. They kept up with the work. And in five years, the temple was built. And it was amazing. And they had a great coronation. And then eventually they built the walls around the city. And it was, it was good times. But 15 years pass. Right? The temple is built. They had the coronation. Life after 15 years kind of gets back into this normal thing. And you know, the, the biggest hindrance to... to our work in Christ is comfort, isn't it? It's routine. It's because we get so caught up in our day-to-day, how life just works, that sometimes we forget about the eternal. This seems so real that we forget that it's just its a vapor. And that God has bigger things happening. So now that the temple is there, God uses the prophet Zechariah to prompt them into action again. And to say, listen, you have to continue the faith. You built the temple, but it wasn't about the temple. It's about building the kingdom. And God gives them through these next few chapters a picture of what he's about to do in human history. And it's amazing. Blow your mind, this kind of stuff. Archimedes about 500 BC, the first thing is he talks about things to come. And the first thing he prophesies was the coming of Alexander the Great. Now, remember, this was written at 500. Alexander came in 330. So it's 130 years later, but look at the, the accuracy at which he talks about this. He says, this is a message from the Lord against the land of Aram, the city of Damascus, the eyes of humanity, including all the tribes of Israel on the Lord. Now, on the Lord there is not the Lord God, it's on the invader. Everyone in the world, this invader is going to be so big to be looking at this guy and what he's doing. Okay? And then he says, this is what's going to happen. And here's the invasion. He says that the attack is going to come through Damascus, right? That first thing there well that was an area called uh syria um syria so we see the first thing is the attacks going to come through syria then it's going to destroy the city called tyre which was an amazing thing a fortified city and then it says from there it's going to go through phoenicia which is along the coast and then on the way out he prophesies in verses eight and beyond he says it's going to bypass jerusalem that the people won't even have to fight this invader which is an amazing thing now this is a map of alexander the great's conquest where did he come through Syria. Where did he attack? Tyre. Now, I'll tell you about Tyre. Tyre had this, was a city, and then off the city was an island that they built as a fortress. And, and the Babylonians tried to capture it, and they couldn't. And the Persians tried to capture it, and they couldn't. And earlier on, some of the Greeks tried to capture it, and they couldn't. For hundreds of years, you couldn't capture this little island because it was so far out. And it was a city like, how on earth would you, would you 
take it. So whenever the city was being captured, they would go there. And God says in this prophecy, oh, the people of Tyre, they're so clever. You're going to die. And what happens? Alexander the Great uses the rubble from the city and builds a bridge and destroys Tyre, which is crazy. So he goes and destroys it. Then where does it go? Well, it talks about he goes through the, the Canaanite cities all the way through, through Ashkelon, all these big fortified cities, and goes down the coast. Alexander the Great goes down into there. He goes into Egypt. He passes Jerusalem. Then it says in the scripture he's going to leave. He's going to, the, 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 uh, the guy's going to come through again. And then God says, you're not going to have to fight for Jerusalem. And he, although he destroyed all these other fortified cities, and Jerusalem was on a, on a trade route, I mean, like a big important area, Alexander the Great passes it again a second time, and the scripture says he'll never come back. And he didn't. Now look at that. Isn't it cool? God tells him, don't worry when the invader comes. Get to Jerusalem. Now those who didn't listen to this and they stayed in their own, country, like their own little towns and stuff like this, a lot of the Jews who were outside of Jerusalem, they got slaughtered. But God kept his city, Jerusalem, and the, and the invader never came near it. And he prophesied. So the first thing that God says is Alexander the Great is going to come. And he says uh, to the people, rejoice. The people of Zion shout for triumph. The people of Judah. Now, this section, he begins transitioning. He says there's a Messiah. And he shows the difference between Messiah and Alexander the Great. And he says some things about this king. He says, look, your king is coming to you. He is riding victorious like Alexander the Great. But look how different. He is humble. Would anybody say Alexander the Great was humble? Not even in his name. He's riding on a donkey, not a, not a war horse. And Jesus comes into the city, fulfills his prophecy, riding in there on a donkey. And he talks about this and he goes on and he says, the Messiah is going to bring peace to the world. What did, what did Alexander the Great bring? War. Do you see that map all the way through the world? He brought war. But the Messiah is going to bring peace. The, the Alexander the Great built borders, didn't he? But he says in here, the Messiah is going to create a kingdom that is borderless. It's going to create, it's going to include all people from all over the world. It's going to be so massive it won't have borders. And he also talks about there that the Messiah is going to save his people through a blood-sealed new covenant. I kid you not. Here's where it is. It says, because of the covenant I made with you sealed with blood, I will free your prisoners from the death waterless dungeon. The Messiah, unlike Alexander the Great is going to make a covenant with his people. Seal with blood. A new covenant sealed with blood. Sound familiar to something maybe we celebrate every Sunday? And because of that covenant, the people will be saved. It is through the new covenant. That's what the Messiah will do. Pretty powerful stuff. Alexander the Great came, 330, 332. Went through the land, fulfilled this prophecy about a hundred and some years after uh, it was given. But then he talks about the next step, what's going to happen, the Maccabean revolt. So the, the Alexander the Great came, he set up the world all around him, and the Seleucids were kind of like the governors of that area of, of Greece. And the Seleucids eventually uh, got very hostile to the Jews, and they had this, this reign where they, they stopped. Um, they said, you, can't, uh, you don't have religious freedom anymore. They tried to punish the Jews. And so uh, the Maccabees, and you can read about this if you can find a, uh, an apocrypha, uh, you can read about in the book of Maccabees, first, second, very historically accurate, um, about what God does. Um, he restores his people through them, and he predicts that here. He said, Judah will be my bow, and Israel my arrow, and Jerusalem my sword, and, and like a warrior I will brandish it against whom? The Greeks. Now, who were the Greeks when this was being written? They were people in a far distant land. You had the Persians that were in control right then. No one was thinking about the Greeks. But he says, you know what? The Greeks are coming through and you're going to defeat the Greeks and you're going to, you're going to beat them. 
And he says God is going to raise up his people against the Greeks, in verse 13. He says he's certainly actually going to assist them in defeating the Greeks in verses 14 and 15. And if you read the stories, both from Maccabees, but also the extra writings, you find that God did. He used hail, he used lightning, he used wind, he used all kinds of things where God helped the, the Maccabees supernaturally and through nature destroy and defeat the, uh, the, the Seleucids. It's really cool. So he says he's going to do that. And then he says they're going to cast off the Greeks, that they're going to have freedom. And they did. So he predicts the Maccabean revolt. And then the next thing he says, after the Maccabean revolt, watch for this, the Messiah is going to come. And he says, from Judah will come the cornerstone, the tent peg, the bow for battle, and all the rulers. And he predicts something about this, uh, this uh, thing through that whole passage um, through there. He says Judah's going to have all these people. So the people are going to have no shepherd before this. So he says, so the Maccabees will be there, but they're not going to really have a true shepherd to guide the people. And they didn't. They were pretty much leaderless in a very real way. And he says that God himself would be the good shepherd. He's going to show up and he's going to care for his people. And who did Jesus call himself? The good shepherd. And he was there to guide and to care for his people. And so it says God's going to come. He's going to be the, come, the cornerstone, the tent peg. He's going to be the one that, 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 that is a foundation and a structure for the people. And he's going to be the bow for battle, right? He's the one that's going to go to battle for his people. But also this, and all the rulers are going to come from Judah as well. Who are the rulers? You know what tribe all the 12 apostles came from? Judah. And he would say, well, what about, uh, what about Paul? He was a Benjamite. Well, true, but he came afterwards, after the ministry of Jesus, right? And then Jesus died, came back, and then Paul came up. And Paul was part of the Benjamite clan, which was surrounded by Judah. And so many times they're considered Judah as well. And so God says that he and his leaders, all of them come from the tribe of Judah, and they did. And then he says, by my power, I'm going to make my people strong. And by my authority, they will go wherever they wish, and I, the Lord, have spoken. And what did Jesus do during his ministry with the 12 apostles? He told them, go to all the different towns and minister in my name, right? And if they accept you, they accept you. And if they don't, wipe the dust off your feet. But there was no, there was no exclusions to where they should go. And then later on, when, when it was time to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, God brings to this Jew, Peter, he says, eat, have a bacon sandwich, and go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Wherever you want to go, you can go. God predicted it and it happened. And it says that the followers are going to minister in the authority and the power of God himself. And that's in verse 12. He says that uh, it is by his name that they will minister. And who do we minister in the name of? Jesus. Isn't that cool? And so there we go. By my power, I will make my people strong. And by my authority, they will go over they wish. I, the Lord, have spoken. So the Messiah was going to come and he's going to give his people authority and power to work on behalf of God in the name of God. That's what he's going to do. But it wasn't going to be perfect for the people. God wasn't surprised by this. He said the Messiah is going to be rejected by his people. And he warned the people of this. He told them what the Messiah was going to do and he says, you're still going to reject him. And then because of that, he predicts the fall of Jerusalem because they rejected him. And he begins with the fall and he talks about the rejection. He says, open your doors, Lebanon, so that fire may be devoured the cedar forests. And in 70 AD, the, the Rome was sacked and destroyed by the Romans. And where did they come from? From the north through Lebanon. And what did they do? They destroyed the forests. And it's interesting that this entire passage talks about the trees weeping and wailing and things like this. The, the Jews, when, uh, when the Romans came down and they destroyed uh, and they sacked Rome, they cut down all the forests so they would have enough timber to crucify all of the people who lived there. And that's why there's not a lot of forests around there even today. 
Um, but it says Jerusalem will be attacked in the north. Uh, the Messiah, the good shepherd, um, he helps his people, but he was rejected by his, his uh, flock. And it also says this about him being rejected. He says this, God's, the Messiah is like having this conversation with the people at this point. And he says, give me what you think I'm, I'm worth, right? If I've done all this work as your good shepherd, what are my wages? And it says that they came up with 30 pieces of silver. And so then it says, and so the Lord says, because he's offended by this, what, 30 pieces of silver, like give me so little? He says, throw, he says, throw it to the potter, this magnificent sum, which is they valued me by. So I took the 30 coins and threw them to the potter in the temple of the Lord. Do you know what happened when Jesus was betrayed by his people? How much the priests paid for him? 30 pieces of silver. And you know what that 30 pieces of silver was used for? Buying the potter's field. Pretty fascinating. Talks about how the people would reject the Messiah and how they would see it. So he was rejected. And so this is what the Messiah says. So I told them, I won't be your shepherd any longer. If you die, you die. If you're killed, you're killed. And let those who remain devour each other. And that's what happened in Jerusalem. The Romans came down. They surrounded the city. And inside the city, more Jews died from infighting than they did from the Romans themselves. If you die, you die. And during that time, there was also a great pestilence that went through. And a lot of people got sick. And uh, they died that way. And so uh, that was a pretty tough thing. And then the Romans came in and killed those. But those that were remaining inside the city, it was because the Romans had cut off Jerusalem so uh, severely, the people inside turned to cannibalism. And they ate each other. And he says, and you're going to devour each other. He predicted it. Just like he said, the fall of Jerusalem was going to happen. Just like he said, Jesus also predicted this in Matthew 24. And the Christians who saw both of these at the time, and they saw the Romans coming down, and they saw what was going to happen, they fled. And they went to a, a distant city, a fortified city, and they were saved. So God was merciful and shows his people how to escape. But he said Rome was going to fall, uh, take over Jerusalem and Jerusalem was going to fall. And after that point, he said it would be the time of the church age. He says, on that day, I will make Jerusalem. Now, remember, Jerusalem just got destroyed. So now we're talking about spiritual Jerusalem, his Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be an immovable rock. All the nations will gather against it and try to move it, but they will only hurt themselves. So God is now bringing in a new age, a new Jerusalem, one that he says, and he talks about in several ways, it's going to be a cup of staggering. He's like, when people try to attack it, it's going to look so vulnerable to them, but then when they go after the church, it's like they'll become drunk, and they'll wonder why can't we stamp it out. It's going to be like this immovable rock that those who come against the church, they'll just hurt themselves when they do it. He says that the church itself is going to be like a source of confusion. It's going to bewilder the enemies of God. How does this thing keep going? It just, it doesn't defend itself. It seems so open and vulnerable. We should be able to put it down, but we can't. And the more we fight against it, the bigger it gets. You know what Justin Martyr called the church? He said, he said this, wherever the blood of the, the church is, it's a seat, uh, where the blood of the martyrs are, it's the seat of the church. Wherever the church is persecuted, it grows. And we find that it's true, and it always has been. And it always will be, because God is in this new Jerusalem. He is in the church, and he is defending it. And it says, on that day, the Lord will defend the people of Jerusalem. He says, the weakest among them will be as mighty as King David. And the royal descendants will be like God, like the angel of the Lord who goes before them. That God will be working in and through his people. And we will receive a power and an ability that the world before that uh, believers didn't have. It's a prediction of the coming of, of, of the Holy Spirit that we have. And that we go and we minister, not in our own name, but in the name of, of Christ. And then he talks about this as far as the church age. He says, and I'm going to pour out. Oh, 
I'm going to pour out my spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and the people of Jerusalem. That's the church. And it says, they will look on me who me and who God is speaking. They will look upon me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as an only son. Now, who is Jesus? It said the Messiah was going to be this prediction of the Messiah. The look on me, God, whom they pierced. The Messiah is going to be God. He's going to be killed by his own people. We literally pierced him. Right? And he was, what does the John 3.16 say? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And it says that the Christians, the people of the church, will look upon Jesus and they will say, we, we crucified him and they're going to mourn bitterly for him. What happened at Pentecost? The beginning of the church age. Peter presents to them, he says, you killed the Messiah. You did it. And the people were filled with deep remorse. And that's what allowed them to turn to him. And we see here a new way of, of not just who the Messiah was going to be, that he's going to be God and, and that he's going to be, he's going to be uh, murdered on our behalf by the people that eventually follow him. He's going to be pierced and he's going to die. And the people that follow him recognize that they're culpable for that. We, we see all of those things. And we see that the starting of, his, of this new covenant, the people that are in it begin with a remorse for their sin and their portion of fighting against God. And then after they have that remorse, right after that, just a verse later, it says, and on that day, a fountain will be opened up for the dynasty of David and the people of Jerusalem, a fountain to cleanse the people from their sins and impurity. What does that sound like? Baptism. A fountain to cleanse their sins. When the people come to Jesus and they have remorse and they repent and they turn to him, they are baptized and they are, their sins are forgiven. They are purified. He talks about an Old Testament language, the New Testament way of, of being part of the kingdom. He talks about the church age. It's so amazing. And then he doesn't just stop there because the church doesn't just stop at baptism. He then talks about this as he says that they're going to go and they're going to be sanctified. And he's going to remove the names of all foreign gods from amongst his people and they're going to grow in him. And so we see the process of the church age, what it's going to be like. We are saved by God's grace through faith, our, our remorse, our repentance, our baptism, but then also to grow and be sanctified in him. And then when that happens, he says this right after Pentecost and people came to faith and they were baptized, remission of the sins, and they, they go off. It says, awake my sword against my shepherd, the man who is my partner. My partner means in that verse, in, that, in the language, somebody of the same essence, of the same position. And God's saying this person is of the same essence and, and stature as I am. So again, saying the Messiah is going to be God. Um, and so God, he says, God is the one who killed the Messiah as well. And it was God's good pleasure to kill him on our behalf. And it says, then it says, Lord, how I strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and I will turn against the lambs. And so he says that there's going to be a time of persecution. Jesus is going to be killed. And what happened to, to all the other people? Well, they scattered, didn't they? So we see that when Jesus was crucified, what happened to the, the, the apostles? They took off. But also we see at, after Pentecost, what happens? Persecution. And, uh, and so we see that he's going to predict that. He says, um, I will bring that group through fire, he says. 
that the church is going to be scattered through persecution. And we're going to go throughout all of the world. And it says this, but I'm going to bring that group through fire and make them pure. I will refine them like silver, purify them like gold. And, I, and they will call on my name and I will answer them. These are my people. They will say the Lord is our God. So the church, in this church age, here at the end of chapter 13, it's a prediction that the church is going to go through a time of suffering. It's going to go through a time of persecution. But God says, I am with them. They're going to pray and I'm going to listen to them. I'm going to carry them through it. And all of their suffering, I'm going to use to purify them for their goodness. In fact, it reminds us of Romans 8 where it says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and called according to his purpose. Or 1 Peter, 3, 1 Peter 1, 3, where it says like this. It says that you're going to suffer trials of many kinds, but don't be sad about that because God is using them to purify you, purify you more precious than gold. That's what your faith is. That's what God is doing. And so this is the age, this is right now, like we see the history of time, Alexander the Great, the Maccabeans, the Messiah came, he was rejected, and, 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 and the church age has begun. And, and now this is where we are. Isn't that cool when you find in Scripture, this is where we are? That there is still another chapter. And he says this, watch for the day of the Lord is coming uh, when your possessions will be plundered right in front of you, like a thief in the night. Jesus is coming back. And it talks about this. It says that all the nations will be, will be coming against us. In verse 2, it says all nations will be gathered against you. It will be a dark day. There will be persecution. It's going to be very, very horrible. And then it says, then the Lord will come and his holy ones will come with him. When all seems lost. And church, I have to tell you, we are in, this, we are in that chapter, right? We are at the precipice of this. So don't lose heart. When all nations come against us, don't lose heart. When all seems lost, don't lose heart. Jesus is coming back. Chapter 14 is yet to come. And he's coming back with all of his angels with him. And he describes that new kingdom as an amazing place. He says there's going to be no darkness, no night. He says there's going to be a place where we'll have a new character. There's going to be no war. It's going to be a place where everybody worships the Lord, where all the enemies of God will either have been converted to, to follow him or they're going to be destroyed. It's a place of complete peace and wonderful. It's going to be worth it. That's the book of Zechariah. It gives us a picture of all of history. And I wish I could go deeper in these, but I see that I'm running out of time. So here's what we need to know. First thing we learn from this book is God is all-knowing, he's all-powerful, and he's all-present. Right? He knows all of history. He's powerful enough to bring about his will even through his enemies. And he's present in the midst of all of it. God has never left us, nor will he ever leave us. The second thing is we know that the Messiah has come. Jesus came. He fulfilled all of the things he said he would be. He is high priest. He is king. He was suffered. He suffered for our sins. He created a new covenant sealed in his blood so we could be saved. He said to come to him in repentance, remorse, repentance, be baptized and grow in him. He did every single thing that was prophesied about him. Our Messiah has come. We need to turn to him. The last thing we see here is that it's chapter 13. We are at the end of chapter 13. The only thing left to happen is for our Lord to come. And so that means that we have to do something about it. So as I bring this message to a close, I want you to take out your connection card. And on the back, I have some suggestions, some things that we can do. First one, maybe, is you need to start a relationship with this Messiah. He's here. He was prophesied hundreds of years, thousands of years before he came. If you have not made a commitment to follow Jesus, now's the time to do it because he's coming back. And he's there to help you. Next thing we see here, though, and so we can, on the other side, maybe it's to, to memorize Zechariah 4.6 because the days will get dark, but we're not afraid because it's not 
by might or by, not by force or by power, but by his spirit, right? To remember this, that God is at work and he's going to do great things and he hasn't abandoned us. This is a verse that's powerful for us and a great encouragement for us for today. So maybe that's what you memorize. Or how about this? Maybe you read Zechariah. I know it's a crazy and it's a long book, but I hope I gave you a little bit of context so it makes a little more sense when you read it this week. See what God is doing in history and go deep into it. There's so much stuff that I wasn't able to cover, but God has been speaking to us for centuries saying, I'm here, I'm present, I'm working, I'm doing great things. So be faithful and get about the work. Maybe you need to read Zechariah and to see that. Or how about this? Maybe you're going to pray for God's power and his guidance. Because we are living in a time right now where the, where the Messiah is building the temple. And he's building it in here, isn't he? And he's building his kingdom in this community. And we are his disciples. And we are here to build disciples and to be about that work. But how do we do it? Well, it's not by our force. And it's not by our power, but by his spirit. So maybe what you need to look in your life, you say, am I about doing his work? What does God want me to do? And if you don't know, maybe a great place to start is to pray for God's power and his guidance. To do the work he's called you to do and to show you the work that he's called you to do. And if you don't know what that is, maybe this week you commit to saying, I want to spend some time with God and to ask him what he wants to me be about. Maybe the last thing there, maybe you do know what your work is. Maybe you just need to get to it. Like the people in the first section of it. The temple was already being built. They've been worked at, but they were getting tired and say, what is my portion? Does it matter? It matters. So maybe for you is to say, you know what, I'm going to take this seriously. Christian, my faith, my Lord, is not just a hobby on the weekends. He is my all in all and he's coming back to get to work and to commit to that. Whatever your commitments are, I ask that you would let me know so I can be joining you in prayer for those this week. If you have another prayer request, please let me know that as well. We pray for you all every single week and it's nice to know how to. Um, And then in a minute, we're going to take our offering. And as we do, please place your, your connection card in the basket as it's passed. Uh, Make this also an offering of yourself to God. All right. Well, as a big book, I appreciate you hanging with me through it. Let's let's, uh, pray for our offering and our commitments now. Heavenly Father, can we say you're good, you're big, you're powerful, you're amazing, and you're doing great work. Father, how exciting is it that we see that Messiah has come, that you keep your word. You always keep your word. And you are not surprised by history, and you are not surprised by the future, but you hold us all in your hand. So, Father God, thank you. Now, Lord, Lord, we see where we are. And we see the work before us. And it is exciting and it's intimidating. So we ask for your guidance and your wisdom as believers and as your church. Help us to be about your work. Let us be faithful in these final days as we await with joyful hope the coming of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us give our all to him in our hearts and in our actions and our spirits. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, whom is here to empower and to lead and to guide our work. Let us be, as a church, responsive to you and faithful. Let us not lose heart, but know with the confidence that we work in the name and in the power of God Almighty. And now, Father, we thank you for this opportunity, this time to bring back to you these tithes and these offerings, just tokens of our love and our dependence upon you. For surely you give us every good and perfect thing, and we rely upon you. So please accept them, Father, as as, uh, symbols of our love and our complete devotion on them. You don't just enjoy these, Father, but you, you own all of us, and we're grateful for that. So, Father, we bring these gifts to you with great praise and joy. It is in Christ's name that we're able to do that. So as we pray, 